I wonder, did any of you have imaginary friends when you were a child? Yep, some people saying yes. Yep, apparently it is quite common for children to have an imaginary friend. I didn't myself. But talking about imaginary friends, did any of you understand Fight Club? You know the film? <clears throat> Someone's saying you understood Fight Club. Maybe you can explain it after. Um, were the characters imaginary or, or not? I don't know. It's a spoiler. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, <clears throat> I don't know whether some of my colleagues at work think that God is my imaginary friend, but I don't know. I guess there'll be many of you in here who would feel definitely that you are Christians, and I would say as a Christian I have a real sense that I can connect with God. Yeah, I can stand in here, obviously, and I can kind of observe, but I can also push through and start connecting. Oh, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. And I, and, I, and I sense God's presence in a way that I didn't know it before I had become a Christian. And uh, but that's not to say my sense of connection with God doesn't have dropouts. You know, like you're on that Zoom call with somebody and then it suddenly sounds like they've gone underwater uh, or something like that. You know you can't hear what they're saying anymore. And then the video goes and the little circling thing happens. And, you know, that can happen in our relationship with God as well. And that's where the Bible's so important for us as we connect with God. Because um, unless you drop it in the bath, it, uh, it's still readable, okay? And it's a message of God from us. And I guess for Christians, the four memoirs written by those who walked with Jesus when he was on earth are particularly uh, valuable and helpful and that's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. John is the fourth one. It was the last gospel to be written. Uh, we, we have very good reasons to believe that when John was a very old man. And this autumn, as has already been said, we're going to look back at John. So I have three aims today, which are on this next slide. I just want to reintroduce us to John's gospel. Uh, then I want to consider what today's passage in the gospel tells us about God in himself, because that's the focus. And then also to move us along from that, to receive life. Uh, uh, the life of God into ourselves afresh. So first of all, to reintroduce John's gospel. If you don't read much, sorry, if you don't read the Bible much, this might all um, just, I think it'll still helpful anyway. But if you've read the Bible plenty, I'm sure you'll understand and resonate with this. So John's gospel is different to Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the others. So in John's gospel, he gives no record of the nativity. He doesn't record the baptism of Jesus. He doesn't record the temptation of Jesus. He doesn't record the selection of the 12 disciples. He doesn't record the Sermon on the Mount. He, doesn't, he has no record of the teaching of the Lord's Prayer. There are no narrative miracles in John's gospels, in John's gospel. He doesn't record a single occasion of expelling a demon from somebody. Um, and, and there's no kind of what we call an eschatological discourse, very little about, um, as it were, no explicit discourse like, like you get in the other Gospels. So I think you might say, well, you know, what's, what's with all these differences? I think John was writing the Gospel last of all. He knew the other guys had covered those things, so he could leave them out. And he could move on to the things that the Holy Spirit inspired him to cover most. And John really focuses on relationships in his Gospel. It's a big focus on friendship with God. There are 27 personal interviews in this Gospel between Jesus and somebody else. It even finishes with a personal interview. 
So John really majors more on meaning than events. Mark's gospel, it was written by Peter, probably written at dictation from the apostle Peter. It's like an action film. Peter was a do, 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 do person. John was a reflective thinking kind of a person. So Mark's gospel is a breathless sequence of and immediately then. Uh, it would be like an action movie. John's gospel is like long shots of Jesus having long conversations with someone that like... Uh, whereas maybe um, Mark focuses on the movement of the feet, John focuses on the movement of the face. And uh, you know those actors that, where they often zoom in on the face and they don't say anything, but the face tells you so much. I always think, what are they thinking inside when they're doing that? Anyway, and I think we can really sense as we read in John's Gospel that it was written by an eyewitness. If you know and follow the Marvel comics, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know Stan Lee was one of the major uh, writers of the, in the Marvel comics. And you may know that he almost always had a walk-on appearance in each Marvel movie. So if you're a bit of a fan, you're kind of watching, you know, you suddenly grab, there's Stan Lee! Right? It's, it's just in the background, maybe sitting in a cafe in the background or whatever. Obviously he died in 2018, so... I suppose they might have holographic uh, cameo appearances, but anyway, that's for Marvel to decide. So John also appears in his own gospel, and he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so the fact he was an eyewitness, there's lots of little details in there. The hour Jesus sat down at the well in 4-6, the number and size of pots at the wedding of Cana, the weight and value of the ointment that Mary used to anoint Jesus with. Lots of little details like that uh, suggest he's an eyewitness. And then John's language is so powerful as well. I really challenge you, if you've read the Bible a lot, I think you could almost rely on this, is that if somebody came up the front and read a passage of scripture and it was from John, you'd probably be able to say, I'm sure that's from John somewhere. His, his language is direct and simple, but obviously with lots of kind of abstract overtones. He's very absolute, lots of black and white. His gospel's full of opposing pairs, light and dark, life and death, truth and lies, lost and found, from above, from below, sight and blindness. This kind of thing really sticks out about John's style. He, he makes sparing use of adverbs and adjectives. He lets the nouns and the verbs do all the work. It's very direct and forceful. So we get to today's passage, chapter 5, verse 16. Um, Jesus has just healed. Um, James Stewart taught about this um, about November last year, uh, that Jesus healed this man on, on the Sabbath. And uh, if you're at all familiar with the Gospels, you know that there was a sort of increasing sort of conflict between Jesus and the religious people of his day who were very particular about strict keeping of the Sabbath. And so this is what has happened here. He's kind of roiled these people. And so as we read this passage, we're thinking, how does Jesus react to them being a bit riled by what he's done? Well, the truth is, as you'll see, he really doubles down on it. So um, let's start at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, like healing this guy, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Thank you, Father, for your word. So we've already done the reintroduction to John. My second section starts next to consider what today's passage tells us about God in himself. Now, you know, if you want to develop a friendship, what sort of things do you need to do? Um, maybe we'll skip giving getting your ideas, but one of the things you need to do is, is kind of sharing about yourself with the other person. You want to tell them stuff. You want to disclose things to them. And in the Bible, you could say the whole Bible is kind of God's self-disclosure. And in this passage this morning, it's very much Jesus-like opening a window for us to see something into the very being of God himself. It's very intimidating, I can tell you, to consider this passage. Now here I have... Um, Elspeth's spotting scope. You know what these are used for? Bird watching, absolutely. So the bird might be far away, but if you can get this set up properly, you really need it on a tripod because otherwise it's wobbling so much. The bird is kind of momentarily in vision and then gone. So, um, so that's what bird lovers use. And this is, I think it's a kingfisher. Do you agree if I picked the right photo? It's one of Elspeth's favourite birds, I think. So, and um, so you know, this is a tool that's used to see something that's far away. And you know, the truth is, we can't make God any bigger, and I can't make God any bigger. How can the biggest person in the universe be made any bigger? But we can make God bigger in our vision, and that's what that something like this does. The bird does not get any bigger, but it fills your vision when you use this instrument. And so today, if uh, by the grace of God, uh, I hope that we can um, have God's help to see more clearly about some stuff about our God. So 
in, it is, as we, res, we read how in response to these Jewish leaders being angry that Jesus made himself out to be equal with God, Jesus doubles down on that claim. And so in verse 17, he says, my father is always at his work to this day and I too am working. Right, this is, um, it was part of Jewish theology that although in the creation account it says on the seventh day God rested, that they would say, no, God is at work all the time because he's sustaining the creation all the time, isn't he? I mean, if on the seventh day he stopped sustaining the creation, it would all have collapsed. And that he, they particularly said God is giving life all the time and that God is judging all the time. And uh, when, so when Jesus says here, he says, my father... Right? He says, my father is always at his work to this very day. He's hooking into that belief they had that God was definitely at work all the time doing his God stuff, sustaining the whole creation. And, uh, and then, but then Jesus goes on to say, and I too am working. I mean, it was incredibly in their face. He's saying, in other words, my work is the same work as God's work. His challenge is, if you're getting mad at me for working on the Sabbath, you better get mad at God too. And uh, now the Sabbath, by the way, is a wonderful gift, don't you think? It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful gift, but not a good master. And unfortunately, some of these religious people in that day, they turned it into a bit of a master. You remember Jesus said somewhere, you know, the, the, the Sabbath, um, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, Yeah. In other words, it's meant to be a gift to us. Many people in our world today and across the centuries have worked seven days a week, three or four jobs just to try and make ends meet. But that is not God's desire for us. His desire is that we would have rest. Don't you love this God? So John does not record what they reply, but he moves on to what Jesus said next. And these are such holy and awesome words from verse 19. And Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because, and I'm putting some letters in here to capture some of the structure, okay? A, whatever the father does, the son also does. B, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. C, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And then on the next slide, verse 22, D, moreover the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Ouch. So this lists four actions that are true of God, which is on this slide. The Father does, God acts. The Father loves, God loves. The Father raises the dead, God brings life. The Father judges, God judges evil. There are many other things that could be said about God, but these are the ones Jesus zones in on here. So, of course, Scripture often discloses God is loving, he's kind, merciful, slow to anger, gracious. But here we have this focus. And really, it's very much a focus on God being self-existent, the giver of life, and God being the judge. Now, one of the best definitions of a Christian is someone who knows God as their father. Now, most children are curious about their parents. It's to do with their identity. That's why, I guess, so many people get into family history. Now, God has heritable attributes and 
in non-inheritable attributes, yeah? Um, so the, this, theologians call this communicable and incommunicable, just in case you were wondering. For example, God is love, and as his creatures, we're also created to love. Love is a heritable or communicable attribute. And also we could say God is a person, and he's made us to be persons. We have self-awareness as being an, in existence, yeah? But if we take another quality of God, God is immense. His immensity is without measure. He is everywhere present. We can never inherit that quality, agreed? So it's a, it's a non-inheritable or it's an incommunicable attribute as God. We can state this as a thought, but I really can't even imagine what it's like to be immense in the way that God is immense. Because I will always be limited to one place and time, one space in, in the universe. So what does this passage focus on? Well, the Father does, the Father works. And this springs out of that whole dispute about the Sabbath. Jesus tells us that whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus is affirming his total unity with the Father, the total triunity of Father, Son, and Spirit. I think that's important for us just to register as Christians because we make a lot about Jesus. And you, and you might think, well, that's somebody different to God. No, they are completely united. You can't get a Rizzler paper between God the Father and God the Son, nor God the Holy Spirit. You will never do that. You know, when you're a child, you often try and get your parents to, you know, ask one of them, the one says no. You go to the other, get them to say yes, <laughs> victory, right? And you've just given your parents a one big problem that they have to sort out between them, right? So, um, and that's in a sense a communicable attitude. God, God, a attribute. God has made us real agents in the world. We can really do things too, but not on the level that God acts and does things. S secondly, the Father loves the Son. Love is at the heart of the Trinity. Jesus affirms his assurance of being loved by the Father. He says the Father loves. It's, it's wonderful what he says there, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> For the Father loves the Son. He's speaking about himself. It's kind of curious in the third person. I haven't really puzzled out why he does that. But um, the Father loves the Son. He's affirming that he himself feels loved. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to do? To be so assured of somebody else's love that you can actually say, this person loves me. Loves right at the heart of the Trinity. That's such a wonderful thing. You know, our Father God, our Heavenly Father, our elder brother Jesus, and the wonderful Holy Spirit, they love one another. You know, sometimes we say to people who are fathers, you know, what's the best thing a father can do for his children? Love their mother. Right? What's, what's the best thing God can do for us? It's for Jesus to love his Father and the Father to love Jesus. Because then we're in a wonderful place of safety and security yeah, well, isn't that so good? A solid rock on which we can build. We sung songs this morning, a firm foundation is, is, is the love of God. And because John's called the apostle of love, and uh, he says, and, and that love spills out from the Trinity. It's why in John 3:16, perhaps the most famous scripture in the Bible, we're told God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
So that love spreads out to us. And that's why God wants to give us his life, because we forfeit life through messing up. But moving on to C, the Father raises the dead. God brings life. This is an activity unique to God. But Jesus asserts that the Son also gives life. John 5.26 is also relevant here. One of the most incredibly powerful philosophical statements in the whole of the Bible. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That short sentence is packed with massive, massive, massive thoughts. It's perhaps the plainest statement in the scripture, something we affirm about God as Christians, that God is self-existence. He simply has life in himself. Nobody started God. There is no first cause behind God. He is self-caused. He is literally just is. He exists. And this is an incommunicable attribute of God because we don't have this. As human beings, I've heard it said that we can last three weeks without food, three days without water, but only three minutes without air. Does anybody, does that sound about right? Um, you, some of you might have tried. Um, we are dependent creatures. God is entirely self-existent. He is without, he is not contingent in any way. I'm sorry about these big words. Um, he, he is, and that's incredibly important. He is not vulnerable. Nobody can be crafty enough to get God. Yeah? He's absolutely beyond um, being attacked or defeated or anything in any way. And what's more, he's granted to the Son to have life in himself too. So the Son and the Spirit share this self-existence, but it's not independent of the Father. Do you see, it says it was granted to the Son to have life in himself. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a contradiction. If you've got life in yourself, how could it be given to you? you you're self-existent, yet it says it was granted. And I think this is to guard the sense that God is one, that Father, Son, and Spirit can't be divided. They're, they're, they're interdependently self-existent. And if you're thinking, whoa, Andrew, yep. <laughs> Scripture speaks of that which we can barely fathom. Uh, the, the ancient, the, the early church tried to capture these things, and I think the Nicene Creed does it, some of the other creeds, speaks about God being uncreated and then the Son being eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, trying to sense some, <laughs> trying to capture something of the relations between Father, Son and Spirit who are of one essence but three persons. Three in one way, one in another way. And by the way, this sequence is not chronological. It's not like the Father existed first, then the Son. They have all existed. Um, they are all God. They're all, they're all uncreated uh, without beginning or end. And yet they're not to be confused or thought to be identical. The Son is incarnate, but the Father and the Spirit are not incarnate. The Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, but not the Father or the Son. Yeah? The James Webb Space Telescope was launched earlier this year. Is that right? I love this kind of thing. I love to have my screensaver being pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. Maybe I need to swap in... James Webb Space Telescope pictures. I mean, the designer saw a program about how they made this. I mean, it took them decades to bring this all together. A quite astonishing feat, and it's amazing they got it out there. And then one of the first images they put out to the public was this. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at this, I think, oh, wow, that is amazing. Um, 
Not sure what it means or tells me. Um, maybe there's people cleverer here who know what this means and tells them, but for me, I'm afraid it's like, psh, like this. And uh, verses like John 5 are like a picture like this into the, the far depths of God. And I hope I'm doing some kind of effort at sort of trying to <laughs> help us have a, some thoughts as best I've tried to work through this of what it means. But let's always recall there are even more wonders to be discovered. And uh, when we are with uh, uh, our Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit forever in the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, oh wow, we're going to just enjoy so many more things to discover in our time there. So the next thing is the Father judges. How am I doing? Uh, so the next few paragraphs, Jesus focuses on um, two of God's works that are unique to God, the giving of life and the judging of evil. Now, some people can think that, uh, well, this is a communicable attribute, isn't it, judging? Human beings are very judgmental. I mean, just look on Twitter or, uh, or Insta or whatever, right? Um, but not in a way that God, God, God is a good judge. I think we're rather poor judges. And, uh, but it, see, it shows we're made by God because we've all been equipped with this sort of uh, a sense of a, a, moral, uh, a moral searchlight within ourselves. I brought my torch today, you know. But the thing we, generally speaking, most human beings shine this torch at other people and say, ha, 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 we wag the finger at other people, right? And, um, so, and, and we never think to turn the torch this way. But that's what your conscience has given you to do. The conscience shines the torch at yourself, but often we don't do that. Or, maybe worse than anything, there are those who become trapped only shining the torch at themselves and uh, become filled with self-hatred or condemning themselves, and, and that's a terrible place to be. What is the solution to this? The solution is here in the passage. You are not supposed to be the judge. Let God be the judge. Yes? Turn the light off. Stop shining at others or at yourself. And entrust this to God. He is kind. He is true. And he's merciful. If we'll only turn to him in repentance, as the passage says. You know, St. Augustine lived in the 3rd or 4th century. One of the great thinkers of the Christian church said this. Because he knew God so well. He said he would rather be judged by God than by his own mother. That's a massive thing to say, isn't it? I, don't, for most, I know some mums are, are terrible, but for most of us, our mum's our biggest fan. I mean, if we had to fall into anyone's hand to have them judge us, we'd choose our mum. But Augustine said he would rather be judged by God than by his mother. Do you know God that well? I'd love it if we did. And Jesus here tells us the Father's given all judgment to the Son, the one who is the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. Isn't that perfect? He is God, but he's also one of us, of like flesh with us. He is the one that we will meet and to whom we'll answer. And the wonderful thing about this is, uh, well, I mean, we must also reckon with this. We will have to answer to God. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. That's everybody. And come out. Those who've done what is good rise to live, and those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. This is a fearful thing as well. 
And I, I want to be right with God. I want to know God so that when I meet him, because you see, he will raise all the dead. Let that sink in. Or everyone who's ever lived will rise and will meet with Jesus, will come before the great white throne and meet with Jesus Christ for judgment. Billions of people, Chinese, Nigerians, Indonesians, Germans, even English people, even people from Yorkshire, right? He will raise Plato and Socrates from the dead, Tutankhamun, Homer, Alexander the Great, Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, Boudicca, Marie Curie, the Pankhurst sisters, Judas Iscariot, Isaiah the prophet, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, and Martin Luther, Michelangelo, Johann Sebastian Bach, William Shakespeare, Elizabeth I, Catherine the Great, Rene Descartes, Jane Austen, Charles Darwin, Mrs. Beaton, Florence Nightingale, Harriet Tubman, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Albert Einstein, Elizabeth Taylor, Indira Gandhi, Marilyn Monroe, Margaret Mead, John F. Kennedy, Kurt Cobain, Mother Teresa, Freddie Mercury, Amy Winehouse, Steve Jobs, Princess Diana, name it who, I don't care how rich you are, I don't care how influential you are, I don't care how crafty you are, nobody will escape appearing before Jesus Christ for judgment. That's what the scripture says. And it reminds us of that here. Nobody can dodge this. I want to be ready, to sh and I want his mercy in those days. And I want to invite you to be in that place of faith where you know God, so that you know you'll be meeting your friend Jesus that you have worshipped and got to know in this life. Because I think it'll be a little bit less scary. I, don't want to, I think it's going to be, I, I personally feel it's going to be a bit scary. I don't know, meeting God, yeah. Have my life opened up. I think it's going to be a bit scary. I was going to do a detour here into something, but I think I'll have to skip it. So, because time is rushing on. So, I'm going to have to jump to the slide for number three. It's quite a way forward. Aim to call us to receive the life of God ourselves. So today... I'm alive physically. I think most of you are, just checking. So no one's died while I was preaching. <laughs> Got away with that again. <clears throat> but in a sense, our whole lives are a funeral procession. I mean, we're all dying, aren't we, bit by bit? So most of the passages in the, in the New Testament tell us about eternal life, that it's something we will get in the future. But John, in verse 24, says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And you're thinking, well, Andrew, that's contradicting what you just said, that we're just gonna, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What's going on here? Which is it? I want to know. Well, I'm going to suggest how I think it works. And, and I think it's because John is, he's become an old man and these things, he's so sure of the truth of these things that he speaks of future things as if they are now. Yeah? That's one way, I think, of thinking of this. He's speaking of future things as being so sure that he speaks of them in the present tense. But... Um, in a sense also, he picks up on this even in this very passage. Look at verse 25. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming. Right, he's, he's realising that this is coming. It's something future. 
But then he says, and has now come. It's kind of some and some. And so we Christians often speak with respect to God's promises about the already and not yet. There's something already being fulfilled about his God's promises, but also something not yet that we still await. And it's important to realize we live in that tension, which explains some of the difficulty we have, why evil still continues and God hasn't finally triumphed yet. Well, no, he hasn't, but he will do. And then verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He knows, John is aware that there's, there's still future about this. Do you understand? But I don't know about you, sometimes when I read John's first letter, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian at the end of reading it because he's so black and white. He's so stated, he so says it's now, you know, you're... But that's because it's, for him it's so real, it's like it is now. And it's deeply challenging. So eternal life will be given fully when Jesus returns. But meanwhile, we can genuinely start to experience I definitely know, since I turned to Christ, I know God. When I was singing this morning, oh, I'm running to your arms, I was connecting with God. And I'm sure many of you were as well. I feel alive in a different way now to what I was before I turned to Jesus. There's a qualitative change in my experience after I turn to Christ and ask for his forgiveness. So I appeal to you today, hear his word and live. And go on exploring that life. John says elsewhere that Jesus came to have life, to give life in all its fullness. Do you remember the different translations? Life in its abundance. I don't always feel like I'm in that abundance yet. But I know I will get to it. And in the meanwhile, I have the opportunity to explore more and more of that abundance. I invite you to enjoy that too. Because of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Yes, say it with me. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So we're walking into that. So just to finish, the very first words that Jesus utters as recorded in the gospel are these. What are you seeking? He said it to... I think it might have even been the, the disciple Andrew, the guy who became the disciple Andrew and Peter. Or Anyway, you can look it up in John 1. What are you seeking? But near the end of the gospel, he says to Mary Magdalene, whom are you seeking? That's a much better question. I wonder if you know what you're looking for. Love, meaning, life. I think the, in the Fight Club film, they were looking for more meaning. If you don't know the film, that's going. But um, as you read John's Gospel, you'll realize that no good thing is to be had aside from in Christ. Get Jesus, you get everything. He free, he's freely given us all things in Christ, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8. So let's sing if Adam and the band would like to come up a, Wonderful song, what a beautiful name it is, a song about Jesus. <clears throat> it says, you were the word at the beginning. He's God from the very start, echoing John chapter 1. And let's worship this wonderful saviour. And be assured that is absolutely right and proper and God the Father's desire that we would be worshippers of Jesus, worshippers of the Holy Spirit, worshippers of God our Father. So let's stand if you're able to.